Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. Welcome to the 13th episode of Lab Talk with Laura. Today I'm joined by Dr. Kristen DeAngelis and Dr. David Sella from the Microbiology and Food Science Department. Um, Dr. Kristen DeAngelis is an assistant professor of microbiology, originally from Watertown, Massachusetts. She got her PhD at UC Berkeley in microbiology, and she studies the soil microbes involved in climate change and tries to apply this understanding to make improved plant-based biofuels. Thank you for joining us, Kristen. Yeah, thanks for having me. David Zell is an assistant professor in the food science department as well as an adjunct in the microbiology department. He's originally from New Jersey. He got his PhD from UC Davis in microbiology, and he studies dietary interactions, especially breast milk, with gut microbes. Thank you for joining us, David. Thank you. Uh, also joining as my co-host today is comedian Nick Karen, who is the host of a weekly open mic in Northampton, Massachusetts at Bishop's Lounge. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I think we're going to start with Kristen. Uh, do you want to just go ahead and tell us a little bit about your research? Um, yeah, sure. So we are a microbiology lab, um, and we're really interested in microbes in the, in the environment and how microbes... Uh, interact to form communities and this specific sort of goal of our research is two. One is that uh, when microbes work together as communities they have the ability to um, affect and respond to climate and so we're really interested in soil microbes and how they sort of interact and uh, can feed back to climate change and uh, the focus of that really is decomposition so microbes break down organic matter into what they call like mineral components and that's CO2 and methane, which are also greenhouse gases. So that's the relationship. And then when we learn about decomposition, um, we like to try and apply what we've learned in terms of enzymes or certain chemistries to breaking down plant material that we can use uh, to make improved plant-based biofuels. Okay. So there's kind of two components to your research. There's the studying soil microbes and then using that in an application to make fuels. Yeah, I would say, yeah. Okay. Do these uh, microbes ever break down emotionally? <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you ask that because some of the more interesting physiologies occur when the microbes, we call them unhappy. And they don't oh. grow as well. Um, they don't reach as high cell densities. Their growth is slower. And uh, yeah, so I, I'd say <laughs> that's a routine part of our job. <laughs> So you kind of add, you do actually apply emotions, like they're unhappy or happy microbes? We, yeah, we do, yeah. Okay. I hadn't thought about it that way, but we do, yeah. Well, I'm sorry for making you think <laughs> of it like that. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, yeah, so where, where do you study these microbes? Do you have like, do you study them in the lab mostly, or are you going out in the real world and collecting them? Or? Yeah, we do both. Um, we study microbes in the lab, and all the microbes that we study in the lab, we've collected from out in the real world. So part of one of the reasons I really wanted to be at UMass is because um, we work at the Harvard Forest, which is an experimental forest in Petersham, Massachusetts, which is near the Quabbin. 
And um, there are some uh, long-term uh, experimental warming studies that are happening at the Harvard Forest, and it's like a climate change um, manipulation, field manipulation. And so we've cultured lots of organisms from these soils that have been heated five degrees above ambient for the longest study's been running for 26 years. Wow. Actually, I think it'll be 27 years this um, spring. Okay. Um, so we have a big culture collection of bacteria from the heated and controlled plots, and I've been looking at you know different traits that they have, what uh, how their uh, genomes are different, um, how they grow differently, and how the communities are different. And so we sort of look at them in the field by using molecular methods like sequencing and physiological methods like enzyme activities, um, and then we isolate the organisms and study them individually as well. Okay. So the Harvard Forest has come up before. I'm curious. Have you ever heard of the Harvard Forest? I've never heard of the Harvard Forest. So it's not in Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, it's actually a department of Harvard. Okay. Um, and the staff scientists that work there mm -hmm. are Harvard. Okay, but it's open to researchers from all universities. Yeah, yeah. So um, the Harvard Forest right now is also an LTR site, which is called Long-Term Ecological Research okay. Site. And this is this NSF program. Um, that f sort of funds these experiments. They're experimental forests all over the world, mm. um, but this NSF sort of extra funding for the LTER is, um, it's almost like setting up a national park, but for research. Okay. So uh, the Harvard Forest LTR is open to the public. You can go hiking there, but you can't drive. You can't take samples, kind of like a national park. And then if you walk through, you'll see our experiments set up. Yeah, I actually went there for the first time this year. I'd heard about it a lot because I studied environmental science too. So there are just a lot of studies of forests in general are conducted there because it's open for research. Um, and I just happened to be driving by it because my friend invited me to go curling. Um, and there's oh, a curling yes. club in Petersham that's really close to the Harvard <laughs> yes, Forest. And I was like, oh my God, the famous Harvard Forest, we have to go yes. for a hike. And it's very beautiful. It's also like there are archeological sites there. Um, but so this is really interesting. So there's the study of climate change and they're heating up the soil. Yeah, that's right. So um, the way to sort of explain how the experiment is run, it's these buried heating resistance cables. And the way it was explained to me, I did not set up this experiment, okay. but the way it was explained to me is, um, do you ever, I, I don't know if you're a football fan or if you ever watched football, like a Green Bay Packers game, and the snow's really coming down, and it's accumulating on people's hats and eyebrows and on the sidelines, but the field is still green. Oh. So they have these buried cables that heat up the field, and it's the same technology that's at the Harvard Forest, except there are thermistors every 10 to 15 centimeters that measure the temperature in the heated and measure the temperature in the control, and there's like a feedback loop. Um, so that it maintains five degrees above ambient since, you know, 1991. Uh, are they thinking about having the next Super Bowl at the, at this uh, forest? That would not be good for my samples. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that football fields were heated. Um, I just kind of assumed they were a completely controlled environment. environment you know. I don't know yeah, much about football, truthfully. Real. Well, we have a big turf grass department here. You should get some of the turf scientists. Oh, really? To you. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's really their field. Yeah. Huh. So did they get involved in that study? <laughs> Do you know? Or? No, 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 because they're all natural forests. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't. So it doesn't disrupt the environment too much to put these heated cables in, or is that that's kind of the whole point? Well, that's actually. A, yeah, that's the whole study. Um, and so you know, one of the big um, results that come out of the study is that there's all this carbon lost from the soil. They're oh, really, really just hemorrhaging carbon. And the reason why you might care about carbon in the soil. Um, carbon, well, carbon <coughs> in the soil is carbon not in the atmosphere. So if carbon's not in the atmosphere, it's a 
greenhouse gas sink. Um, but also, carbon in the soil does a lot of wonderful things for soil. It gives it its water holding capacity. It gives it nutrient holding capacity, which makes it a nicer place for plants. Mm. Um, if there's more carbon, there's more um, what they call like niche space, so more different types of um, plants and insects and microbes can live there. So there's more biodiversity, and um, more diverse communities are more resilient to stress. Mm. So there's a lot of benefits. Yeah. So are you looking at how that those changes affect the plants in that area too, or is that kind of separate from what you're doing? We want to, but it's hard because you, we're not warming trees. Mm -hmm. So we can't uh, in Right, you can't just heat up the air. No, although well, there are experiments where they're heating up um, uh, soils and whole trees, and they're mm. really oh, wow. huge. I mean, imagine like a greenhouse yeah. built in on top of a tree. It's amazing. Oh. Cool. So then when you're in your lab, you said you're looking at like enzymes and the communities of microbes. Yeah. So, um, so, so we study communities. We study individuals. So we isolate bacteria and study them individually. And then we um, put them back together in ways that we think will mimic communities and see if our predictions are right. Okay. Yeah. So what kind of things might you be predicting? So like um, the different types of enzymes they produce. Um, how active the enzymes are, um, what kind of temperatures the enzymes are active under. So what are those um, enzymes controlling? Decomposition. Okay. So breaking down plant material, which is uh, cellulose, hemicellulose, and um, lignin. So breaking that down into its sort of smallest components, turning it into biomass, turning it into mineral carbon respiration. Okay. Yeah. So one of the things we're really interested in is um, efficiency. <coughs> Mm -hmm. Does anybody, do you know what I mean when I say like uh, substrate use efficiency, efficiency? So mm. the way I like to explain this is, um, so all organisms have an efficiency when they take in substrate. Uh, some of it is used to, for biomass and energy and some is lost as CO2, that carbon. Okay. So all people are 50% efficient. You eat a sandwich, <laughs> you eat some candy, your 50% is lost to the air. And it doesn't matter what quality of substrate, how nice the food is, it doesn't matter um, how stressed out you are, your people are always 50% efficient. Wait, Microbes 50 are- 50% of my sandwich becomes air? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need you to explain that more. So 50% <laughs> of your sandwich becomes uh, CO2, because okay. you're making energy, you're making so ATP to like- is that uh, this is maybe more David's topic. <laughs> Sometimes I only feel about 30 or 25 percent efficient. <laughs> okay, so wait, so it just is wasted. Well, no, it's it's, okay. it's a byproduct of it's making energy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just I'm trying to understand what that means that I'm 50 percent efficient. So I'm trying to wrap my head around it's, it. Uh, your body is 50 percent efficient at turning food into more of your body. Into more of my body. Yeah. And the other 50% is? CO2, what you're exhaling. Okay. And so the point is microbes, that CO2, that greenhouse gas, are 20 to 80% efficient. They have a huge range, uh -huh. and it matters um, the quality of the food that they're eating, and it matters how stressed they are. And so oh, that's more, partly th what more than it matters in. for us. Yeah. Oh, wh so why does it matter for them and not? Like, why is ours, like, flatline? Or will ours change during global warming, too? That's a great question. <laughs> Maybe that will be my next topic. Um, microbes are super, um, they're able to adjust to different types of conditions in ways that we don't understand, so that's why we can't predict what they're okay. going to do. And that's so that's what, what you're trying to figure yeah. out. Okay. It's going to be a community effort, I would say. 
uh, predicting what microbial communities can do in the future. So they become less efficient as the temperature increases or more? Uh, they do become less efficient as temperature increases, yeah. And does that relate to why the carbon is leaving the soil? It does. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, what's a, what's a good amount of carbon to, like, what's the ideal amount of carbon to have in the soil? Uh, the more, the better. Actually, I, I read a study about, um, like, this ecosystem service aspect of having lots of carbon in the soil for, like, water and nutrients. And uh, the big limiting factor is um, having carbon to put in the soil. Farmers would just run out of manure. There just is not enough organic matter to add to the soil. Mm. So never enough <coughs> is the answer. Oh. Yeah. Okay, so maybe um, we can turn to the fuel side of things. Oh, yeah, the biofuels. Yeah. Yeah, so um, this is work I started. When I was a postdoc, I worked in Puerto Rico, and the forests of Puerto Rico are really interesting because um, they uh, decompose uh, plant material really quickly. And so they look really different from the forest that we see sort of around UMass or mm. at the Harvard Forest in central Massachusetts, where if you walk through the forest, you see this thick litter layer. And then underneath that, there's this, this mat of organic soil. It's like a, if you were to cut it, it would be like a rug that you could lift up. It's a very mm. thick layer of organic material. And uh, the forests in the tropics don't have that because they decompose the plant material so quickly that it never has a chance to accumulate. So they're really fast at breaking down plant material. So we thought, well, let's like study those microbes and see if we can use those to break down plant material for biofuels. So this is, you know, one um, idea for energy solutions of the future is to turn plants into biodiesel. That would be s sort of a way of not relying on fossil fuels. And um, people are really good right now at turning cellulose into different types of fuels, ethanol, butanol. There are all kinds of synthetic fuels. But the problem, the cellulose is just polymers of sugar, right? Like super rich for turning into other things. The problem is the lignin. It protects the cellulose and um, makes it hard to break down. So that's where that's what our study is to try and see if we can come up with some different ways of uh, getting the lignin away from the cellulose so that other people can turn the cellulose into biofuels. Okay, so the cellulose is the plant sugars? Yeah. Is, are plants just made completely of cellulose, or is that? They're more than half cellulose. Okay. Yeah, and then the hemicellulose sort of holds the lignin to the cellulose, and then the lignin, it's called a complex heteropolymer, and it's just this weird phenolic polymeric substance. Um, you can extract it, and it kind of looks like tea. Okay. Um, that's Wait, sorry. I, you lost me. I'm really not a <laughs> biologist. You yeah. can tell probably yeah. from the way I'm looking at you as you say <laughs> these words. Um, I'm trying to follow. So uh, so the lignans, that's what you're trying to get out of the way with yeah, these microbes? Yeah, that's what we want to get rid of, yeah. Okay. And what it's, do they do? So they protect the plant. Okay. Um, so we want the sugars for biofuels. Mm -hmm. Insects want the sugars to eat. Okay. Um, animals want to eat plants, and uh. so it's a way of it's one of the ways that uh, plants protect themselves okay. is with the lignans. And Can so you tell, like, by looking at a plant, how many lignans it has? The heart. <laughs> that might be well, a really terrible way no, of phrasing no. that question. No, it's a know. good question. Uh, lignin makes plants hard. Okay, so the harder yeah. the plant, the more the lignin yeah. it has. So kale has like a lot of lignans. Maybe, I don't know. I was thinking more about trees. Depends on trees. How you, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on how you cook the kale, really. Oh, okay. Yeah. But like the stems have more lignin, oh, okay. I guess. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So have you made any progress in this getting the lignins out? Operation and lignins. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> um, 
We have succeeded in uh, changing the lignans. It's really hard to know if we are breaking them down, and that's mm -hmm. actually what we're doing right now. What happens when it. they change? Like, they change where they are or how they're shaped? Um, or? They change, um, their chemistry changes, and okay. that's how we measure them. Like, their spectral qualities change, the size can change. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, oh, so one thing that I thought of, um, so when I th you were talking about the way that microbes break everything down. Yeah. Um, so when I think of uh, decomposition, I think of fungus. Are fungus part of the picture here, or is it? Yeah, that's a great question. Fungi are a huge part of the picture of decomposition, but where we come in is fungi use oxygen, okay. and that's not a great, um, it's not a great method for applied science. So the fungi use these, um, they make reactive oxygen species with oxygen, and they're these destructive little free radicals, and they break bonds in a very um, random way. Oh. Um, and uh, they're expensive to generate, and they're hard to control. Okay. And so what we're, we're trying to do with the bacteria under these anaerobic conditions is to find uh, enzymes and pathways that will give us sort of a more um, sort of predictable um, product from mm. the decomposition. Okay. So um, other things that are made of phenolics are flavorings and um, fragrances and um, dyes and pigments. Okay. And there are not a lot of, well, so lignin, like plant lignin is the largest natural source of phenolics. So a lot of people are interested in trying to turn lignin into something else, like not just mm. to make improve biofuels, but to it's called lignin valorization, and this is on everybody's <laughs> mind right now because valorization. Yeah, I know. Is that horrible? Valorous like, lignin. I know, to try and make it better, because so it's crummy. Um, <laughs> and then the joke is, um, you can make anything out of lignin but money. So what makes so the lignins turn into phenolics? Well, that's what they're made of. That's what they're yeah. made of. That's like, that's okay, so when so you break them down, yeah, you so, get the phenolics. So polymer is like a string of chemicals that okay. are all the same put together, mm -hmm. right? So the um, cellulose is polymer of sugar. That's wonderful. That's okay. what we want. Lignin's a polymer of these phenolics, okay. but it's a complex heteropolymer, meaning that it has like a really weird structure and a lot of different types of bonds. Oh, okay. Yeah. Heteropolymer. Yeah. Okay. Heteronormative polymer. Mm -hmm. no, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I agree. So, so the phenolics are useful for all these different applications. Yeah, I mean they're they're used today. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What can mm. you repeat? What those were? I, you said like perfume and. Uh, yep. Yeah, so um, fragrances, flavorings, oh. um, and actually vanillic acid is one of our test compounds that we use. Um, dyes and pigments, so we have these um, very beautiful plates where we can screen uh, activities for uh, lignin degradation that are different colored dyes, pink and blue and red, just like everybody likes to do those yeah. assays, they're beautiful. Wow. Do you ever save them and like hang them on your wall as art if they're so beautiful? The plates. Yeah. No. <laughs> are no. they not they, quite that beautiful? No. We'll take pictures of them and save the pictures. Okay. It's safer. Okay. <laughs> are they dangerous? To ha is it like a biocontamination situation? Um, well, yeah. I mean, just like anything is better in moderation. <laughs> the same is true of microbial isolates. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is there anything else about your research that you want to share that hasn't come up? 
like partly I love microbiology because there's so much we don't know. And I'm still so surprised. Um, so I'm teaching microbial diversity right now. And I'm still so surprised at how much we don't know. Do you know? You guys can, can answer. I ask this to my students. Are there more microbes on our planet Earth or stars in the known universe? What do you think? I'm going to uh, say the stars. I feel like you led us into the answer, but so I feel like it's microbes. It's microbes <laughs> by like ah. it's microbes by like really ten <coughs> orders of magnitude. Really, we don't know how many different microbes there are. It's amazing to me. They're on every surface. We don't know of truly sterile environments. It's. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Those were types of microbes, not just. No, just cells. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, individual microbes. I was gonna say that's a lot yeah. of different types of microbes. But we don't even know how many types there are. So yeah, there's no really way don't. to even yeah. compare, really, to it's, say we know. Yeah. I mean, and that's a big part of what we do is figuring out good ways of comparing them. Yeah. Do you get attached to the microbes? Like, do you form bonds with them? I do. Really? Do yeah. you give them names ever? Um, no. No. What's no. your favorite like microbe? Squirmy or <laughs> like squirmy or I don't know. What you? Would, I don't interact with microbes, <laughs> or I do actually, but I don't realize it. I like that. Squirmy. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody else has came on the show who. Um, studied uh, Lil Fritz Leyland, I don't know if you know her, but she studies how microbes move, um, and she a lot of interesting things came up, but one that was really interesting to me is that there are 16 mating types that they've observed, so that's like the equivalent of gender maybe for microbes, I don't know, that's a stretch to say that well, microbes have gender. But she but studies microbial eukaryotes, and we yeah. study bacteria, which oh, are okay. all asexual, there's a lot of horizontal uh, gene transfer. Okay. Um, yeah, it's really different. This is a distinction that, yeah, maybe I w didn't realize. Yeah. yeah. So, no, I don't think we have mating types, not in the true sense. Okay. Yeah. And then there's this whole other world of, what do we call it, um, acellular life. So, like, viruses and prions and plasmids and mobile DNA that's just, you know, going its own way uh -huh. without cell envelopes <laughs> out in the world that okay. are also changing bacteria. So, yeah. That are changing bacteria? Yeah. Moving mm -hmm. genes around, giving mm -hmm. them different traits. The only thing of those yeah. that I've heard of is viruses. Yes. You brought up plasmids? Yeah, plasmids are like um, little round circles of DNA that aren't as um, sort of capable as viruses at moving around. Like bacteria will give them to each other. Oh. So that's how like antibiotic oh. resistance crops up because one cell will figure out how to deal with the antibiotic and then it will put that gene on a plasmid and give it to all its friends, and then suddenly you have like a public health issue. So it's <laughs> how how bacteria share information, kind of? Or yeah. Or, oh, or is it so more like, like currency? Yeah, hmm. I'm, well, probably for a microbe it's like currency. I mean, it's more than information, it's like blueprints for a plan of action. Really. Oh, I was thinking of it as like the Twitter for <laughs> microbes, but that's not accurate, maybe. No, there is a Twitter for microbes. Um, that they communicate with each other. Uh -huh. But plasmids are more like uh, tools. Okay. Like they're more like passing around tools to deal with problems. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. What were some of the other things you mentioned there that are like, they're not really life, they're like... Oh, yeah, prions. Prions? Yeah. What, what's that? Um, our, the new dean of the College of Natural Science studies prions. And prions are different um, conformations of proteins, right? So you know what a protein is. Mm -hmm. It has a certain structure. It folds a certain way. Okay. Well... Proteins can fold in different ways, and then that different folding conformation can be an infectious agent. 
and it can cause other proteins to fold in other ways, and that's how you get mad cow disease. Mad cow disease. Oh wow! Yeah. So they and like teach the other proteins how to do this, or they do, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's bad. I don't know. Do they? Does it act like a template, or I don't know ex- if they know exactly the mechanism? And then there's an equivalent um, in people called Creutzfeldt Jacobs disease. Yep. Yeah. And also Alzheimer's. It's not prion, but it's some concepts behind that is that it's a misfolding of proteins and aggregation of misfolded proteins and so it has a lot of relevancy towards our own health wow i would probably also be misfolding a lot of proteins i can barely fold my laundry (laughs) i know i'm like oh i have so much unfolded laundry but maybe that's good if folding the wrong way is worse that's right just don't teach anyone else how to not fold their laundry problem it's fine wow this is all fascinating. I should take a biology class. Probably. <laughs> do they? What? How much biology do you have to take before they start teaching you these things? Uh, teaching you microbiology. Yeah. Um, I took an intro bio class, but I feel like I didn't learn any of this really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. But maybe I was just like yeah. tuning out. I didn't take it at UMass. I know. I'm sure I, it I mean, I think we UMass. see it like our majors start their junior year, I think, sophomore, junior. So, no, it's not an intro level uh, type of science. You hold the good stuff back why. a little yeah. bit. Seems well, like th- maybe this is why it took me so long to become a microbiologist. I had to, like, level up to it. Yeah. I never really thought huh. about it that way. But yeah. <laughs> maybe. Seems like microbiology would be the, the ground level, you know. It's like <laughs> the smallest, the lowest you can get, and you work your way up to the macrobiology. <laughs> <laughs> but we're all more familiar with macrobiology, maybe, is do you, is it called macrobiology? I think it's just called biology. biology. <laughs> okay, you don't even need to say. <laughs> well, you know what macro. the microbiologists call it? Um, the charismatic megafauna. Ah, uh, yeah. Wow. It's kind of a pejorative. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> Charis- it like sounds like, like a yeah, the microbiologist. Okay. No, it's not very nice. <laughs> I, I've heard that phrase, actually, because I'm friends with a biologist who she does more f- field biology. And she's like, well, I wish I could study charismatic megafauna, but not everybody gets to do that. <laughs> and so I'm surprised I've actually heard that, that well, string of words I before. Mean, you know, we are just biologists, um, but we can't see our organisms of study. So it, does, it puts this whole extra layer on top of everything that we want to know, because then you have to like know your tools really well, mm. because every way that you understand your organisms that you can't see is always through this lens of analysis, this lens of whatever tool you're using. Yeah. So, yeah, did you say that there wasn't microbiology when you were an undergrad, or? I don't think they so. They didn't offer it It wasn't a major, school? yeah. Okay, yeah. But now people can major in it more. So. <laughs> <laughs> so do you ever wish you could do, like, the magic school bus thing and get really small and actually <laughs> interact with your microbes, or would that be too scary? Oh, that'd be a tough life. I'm not sure I'd be ready for that. Yeah. Maybe if, the, if the magic school bus, stuff. like, I could stay on the school bus, that mm-hmm. would be amazing. Yeah. No, I don't want to get down in there with them. Okay. Nah. <laughs> You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. My guests today are Dr. David Sella from the Food Science Department and Dr. Kristen DeAngelis from the Microbiology Department. My co-host today is comedian Nick Karen. Jumping right back into it. Okay. So uh, now we'll move on and talk to Dr. David Sella. Um, so could you just go ahead and tell us about your research? I could, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's <laughs> see. What do I want to talk about my research? Well... So we study host microbial interactions, and we focus on dietary interactions. So what you eat 
does not only nourish you, like your own cells, but also nourishes the microbial cells that live in us and on us as well. And so mm. we're tr really trying to understand what are the foods, the diets, the lifestyles that could influence the microbes, the beneficial microbes that live inside of us um, to benefit us. So to uh, influence our physiology in a beneficial way or mitigate diseases where they might uh, be. Okay. I haven't, I've, so I feel like this has been kind of a hot topic in society lately, like gut microbes, you know, with like probiotics. Is that, mm -hmm. would you agree? Has it been like something people are more aware of generally? Yeah, so um, I started graduate school in 2003, and I think back then, if I asked a class, and I was not teaching back then, if I asked a class, of, so do you know what probiotics are? There'd be very, very few hands at that point in time. I ask classes right now, they could be nutrition classes, could be food science classes, micro classes, and the majority of students do know what probiotics are. And so that's really coming to the public um, for the zeitgeist, whatever you wanna call it, and a lot of people are interested in these microbes you can eat that could benefit us, or what can we eat to benefit our microbes? How can we be good to them? How can we be good microbiome farmers, as it happens, uh, to benefit ourselves? Yeah, one thing that jumped out at me when you started talking about that is I think about, yeah, like my gut biome or whatever, but I haven't thought about like the things on the outside of my body and like what what's going on with them. Do you study both or? Uh, not us, not our laboratory. We do okay. not study. Um, microbes that associate with skin um but if we take a look at human uh, anatomy and the gastrointestinal tract is actually an external surface as well as the external surface of the skin so huh. during the process of development in utero you everything was external and you kind of folded it over does not translate very well this visual with the rain <laughs> he's folding his hands he's holding Wait, his so hands they like start your your whole like digestive system starts on the outside of a misunderstanding mm -hmm. so okay. like a, a plate of cells that kind of fold over oh sort of making a taquito or so we're like formed that. in like an origami sort of way is that I the like that. Uh, yes <laughs> <laughs> Is that the, what's it called? The, it's not the Blastoise, because that's a Pokemon, but it's the Blastoise. <laughs> right, yeah, so, um, yes. What's, what's that word I'm thinking of? There's uh, uh, gastrulation is one of the processes. Maybe Blastosis? I think that is what I'm thinking of. Okay, yeah, so there's a whole developmental program that, that happens in utero in mammals and other um, organisms, and that's one of the facets, that our gastrointestinal tract actually was an external surface huh. that folded upon itself. And you actually get some birth defects uh, when you don't have correct folding of that. So spina uh, bifida is one of those things that may occur. Okay. Well, folding is really more important than I ever realized. I'm suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> no idea what's. I thought it just that. affected the cleanliness of my floor, but <laughs> it's got other implications as well. I got to get more into folding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Is there, a, are there neutral biotics? Like there's probiotics and antibiotics, but is there like a centrist biotic? Actually, most are centrist biotics. Uh -huh. uh, we, we tend to have this uh, view of the world that's um, bipolar or uh, some element of duality to it, that mm. that's a good bacteria, that's a bad bacteria, that's a good food, that's a bad food, and it doesn't really work like that. And so most microbes are relatively neutral that there'll be commensals, that we carry them in our bodies, and they're not necessarily gonna benefit us that much, or but they're not gonna harm us. So most microbes that are associated with us are relatively neutral. Huh. And I think that's one important distinction. There's a lot of uh, excitement about microbiome and how we could 
feed the microbiome to influence our health. But for the most part, a lot of the microbes that live inside of us are not there uh, to do these various complex operations to benefit our health. What are they doing then? They're just living their own lives. They are, but they're assembling into a community structures, sort of what Kristen's studying right there. Yeah. And it's really the emergent properties. So one plus one doesn't always equal two. Sometimes one plus one equals three. The emergent properties of these microbial communities are much more than individual components. Hmm. And so you can have one microbe eat something that spits out another chemical that the next microbe consumes. And then you have these intricate webs, you know, these food webs that you learn about K through 12 or intro to biology. You have that's what's going on inside the body. You have that going on in soil as well. Hmm. And so what we have here is this intricate biochemical network that's happening with these ecosystems inside our body that are intertwined with our own physiology. And then it's intertwined with other people as well. And then the community. And so a lot of times when uh, Chris and I get together, we talk about microbes from different scales and then we come out of this you know hour two hour experience where it's like yeah we're actually studying the same thing just through different um slight nuanced lenses yeah that's really fascinating huh. fascinating on most days to me <laughs> <laughs> many days all days every day is a good day at umass so it seems like there's just as much sort of um diversity and bio and sort of an environment happening inside of you as almost as there is on the surface of of the earth like a like a diversity of different species interacting and forming a circle of life but on a different scale we do take a look at diversity that's a big part of what we do and when i teach about this i tell the students to look outside the class look at those windows and take a look at the trees the the plants, you know, butterflies, if it happens to be passing by us, um, and say that that's an ecosystem. And that's exactly what's happening inside of us as well. And so diversity is a big part of that as well. And so we want to understand, well, what sort of diversity we have that could be resilient to all kinds of challenges. It could be antibiotic challenges, could be diet, lifestyle. You know, I could break a leg and be really sedentary for a few months. So how can I maintain function, you know, of all these different systems, including our microbial systems? This is uh, maybe uh, going to go nowhere, but if you break your leg, is that going to affect the microbes in your body? Well, not the, the leg breaking itself. I mean, okay. I suppose if you have a compound fracture, that's not going to be good. You're going to be affecting a whole lot more than just your microbes, but really a change in your lifestyle. So if mm. you are used to working out, um, strength yeah. training or cardio, and then all of a sudden you're on your couch, that could affect what's happening in a lot of systems. And the arrow, the causal arrow, you know, in uh, two different directions. It could be, well, I'm more sedentary, so that affects the microbes and vice versa. Hmm. Yeah. So you also study specifically how breast milk interacts with gut biomes, is that right? Mm-hmm. Is gut biome the right word to say? I'm, I'm, I keep saying that for some reason. I got that in my head. You, you see a lot of different ways of uh, describing the, the gut microbiome. I was just giving a lecture about this too. And so in science, we see a definition creep for a lot of different terms. And so now we tend to say the human microbiome uh, as a placeholder for a gut microbiome, mm. which is, um, we actually have many different ecosystems along our gastrointestinal tract. So there's not actually one microbiome, but we, okay. we tend to lump it in. And I think the public awareness is around the microbiome. I think uh -huh. that's probably more common, but I've heard people say biomes. Uh, biomes is a, um, 
ecological term um, huh. that has um, either been plugged into our microbiology or not, depending on who you speak to. Anyway, that's a long-winded uh, <laughs> response to your to your question. So remind me what the question was so that beyond the Is microbiome. it okay to say gut biome? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are certain, there certain biomes of the body, right? Like the microbial communities on your skin are different from the ones in your gut versus colon and they are. armpits so, and so different areas of your mouth. Are those mm. biomes, you, would you say? Uh, you could. So I was having this conversation with Jonathan Eisen, and, and his opinion was that it would have been really cool if the term microbiome originated with this concept of a biome, but he's afraid that it, never, it didn't. And so we can like, I know it sounds bizarre. This is like really intricate, nuanced, scientific. Is this, is this nitpicky? It's, it, it's, it's interesting. This is like the I, fun stuff that David and I like yeah. and like I, two other people on campus. I, like, I really like this analogy though, of like thinking about your body as like an earth and like different parts of it being like different biomes is kind of a cool analogy to me. Also because I think um, it reminds me of like Gaia theory. I don't know if you guys are. I yeah. do. And so you're aware that Lynn Merkulis was on this campus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I actually got to meet her before she passed away. She oh, was in really? my department. She was in the geoscience department, surprisingly right. enough. Yeah. I'm not or familiar I mean, with Gaia theory. So yeah, Gaia theory is this idea created by Lynn Margulis that kind of the whole earth is an organism, that all the things on the earth are interacting. Is that an accurate way to describe it? Yeah, it's like a superorganism and just mm -hmm. like organisms have like a homeostasis where they can change to maintain like a certain type of activity. The more I go into my studies, the more and more I see those parallels, and the more and more. Yeah. So when I was talking about how Kristen and I examine our work together, and we get together, we, we chat about this, we can see those um, concepts emerge. And so Gaia theory is uh, compatible. Um, mm. Now, some people have different ways of defining Gaia theory and maybe go along a little bit more of a spiritual path, which is great. Mm. Um, but the concept of our interconnectedness biologically I mean, that's a, we have a lot of strong evidence for that. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that the evidence is growing for that as we come to understand? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about my specific study system that we, okay. we take a look at, and we take a look at breastfed infants. Mm -hmm. And so you can't take a look at a breastfed infant as a discrete unit. It's also mom there, too, and it's also um, caretakers. There's physicians, there's nurses, there's... Um, neighbors, there's people come over. And so it's not a discrete, what does the baby have in terms of their microbes, but it's a cloud that sort of um, envelops mom and baby during the process of nursing. And then you have other people coming into the equation as well. And so you can't, you don't have a baby isolated by itself. Hmm. And we don't have humans isolated by themselves. We can't get away from microbes, even if we wanted to. I don't see why we'd want to, but um, even sending um, satellites into space or uh, exploring other planets, it's really difficult to maintain sterility. Mm -hmm. And whether or not we do that, I'm not, I don't know how good we are doing it. I don't think we've been doing it. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a hot topic now since we're talking about like return missions from Mars mm -hmm. and the, the issue of yeah, contamination and cross-contamination. It's, it's, it's really hard and might be futile. It's, um, you know, operating rooms. You want to have it as clean as possible, however you define clean, but you're not going to not have microbes. You go to the beach. We talked about some of these uh, secondary particles that, um, you know, are, are they alive or they're not alive. When you're sitting on the beach, this could be Puffer's Pond, 
right? Okay. So right. to keep it to keep Pr- it local, particularly microbe filled <laughs> environment. <laughs> it is particularly. <laughs> well, you're sitting on a sand there, and that's just all um, prophage, which is a bacterial or, or bacteriophage, which are uh, bacterial viruses, viruses that infect bacteria or DNA adhered to the sand, and it just tons and tons and tons of microbial life uh, everywhere you go. Hmm. So we shouldn't want to be perfectly sterile. No, no. no. Uh, it's um, it's one of those things that we talk about extremes. We talk about balance, perhaps in um, earlier parts of this conversation. Here is that we took a look at infectious diseases and we say that's not great. We don't like to die. Let's get away from infectious diseases. And then all of a sudden we decided that, okay, well let's try to be as sterile as possible because bacteria or infectious agents are bad. Okay, well, I don't want to have a Clostridium difficile infection. That's for sure. I don't want to have MRSA. I don't want to have these things here. But to rid ourselves of a component of our cells, and we've co-evolved with microbes, and we just have. Mammals have, all animals have, and that's just the way it happened on our planet and our existence. To get us away from that um, really does not make any sense. Uh, and we're learning about consequences, downstream consequences. That could be either the acute, when you're feeding people antibiotics, uh, what that actually does to the composition and the function of their microbes, or it could be over generational time. You know, what are we doing right now over the course of modernity that are different than our ancestors? Mm-hmm. How does that influence our microbes? And so we work a lot with anthropologists who go oh. into these far-flung areas of the world to look at indigenous people because they happen to have a different evolutionary trajectory, hmm. right? And so, um, which is actually kind of, uh, it's great because for me, a, um, I don't know, a, a, a danger fraught day is if my computer doesn't turn on or something, right? And so um, some of our anthropologist <laughs> colleagues are going to like places that have the road of death or like have these places where it's, um, you know, it could be in Bolivia or Nepal or all kinds of great places for them to go to uh, and for them to collaborate with us. And um, even in those remote places where you have indigenous people, we still see antibiotics flow through. So it's really hard to actually get these controlled studies to go back in time to see where we were um, Mm. microbiologically before we had things like skin and hair care products, before we Mm. had Mm. uh, modern medicine, before we had um, central food systems and the way we distribute food before we decided to heap stress upon us through the various ways we do work on in our society. All these sort of things. Wow. It seems like a very complex problem to suss out all of the different influences. Um, do you have any specific, like what, what kind of research questions are you specifically tackling or do you have any results that are really exciting to you to share or anything like that? All my results are exciting. <laughs> Every yeah. single last one. Um, so, you know, we're really interested in what mom secretes in breast milk that does not directly nourish the infant mm-hmm. and actually passes through the infant gastrointestinal tract and evades digestion. Uh-huh. So the question is, well, why is mom spending all that energy to make these things that don't feed the baby huh. at cost to her own perhaps health or fitness? Okay. So is there a fitness benefit for the, the baby, right? So that, that's the, really the name of the game when it comes to nursing an infant, mm-hmm. you know, uh, propagating our species. And so there are these uh, sugars in breast milk that are in addition to lactose, lactose we find in cow's milk also, there's these milk oligosaccharides. And so they're a little longer chain, they're not quite as long as cellulose. These milk oligosaccharides pass through the infant 
unless the microbes are there to consume them. So they're actually feeding microbes that are beneficial inside the gut of the infant. And we're trying to understand those molecular interactions. So how are these microbes eating these breast milk products? Hmm. You know, what are the enzymes that they're secreting or how are they transporting these sugars inside the, the cell? What are the things that these microbes making that feed other microbes or feed the infant, provide vitamins, those kind of things? Okay. So we, um, before the show started, we were talking about how humans drink cow milk and how that's weird. <laughs> uh. <laughs> or, <laughs> I mean, I'm, an, I'm a big milk drinker, truthfully, but I, I do see how it's weird. But um, do you have, like, an opinion about that that's informed by your research, or is that way too far from what you actually study to? Um, we actually know a lot more about cow milk from a certain perspective than our own milk. Really? And there is um, one instance, there is the, the, um, the profit motivation. So trying to understand the health benefits of milk has uh -huh. been something that's been in the scientific consciousness for a while now. Um, and only now are we starting to really pick up our understanding of human milk and lactation. There has been a society, there have been researchers working on this for, for many, many years. But I think right now our sub-discipline, understanding human milk, is really, really um, attracting people from all kinds of different disciplines to microbiologists, for example, um, whereas um, classically you would have only a small group of people uh, doing this and who've done fantastic work for, for a long time. Um, so that's the story of knowing more about cow's milk versus hmm. um, human milk. There are some people who take a look at what's present in cow milk and not in um, human milk and say, well, why are we consuming that? That might be bad. Well, if there's no evidence that's bad, then there's no evidence that's bad. <laughs> it's, it just seems to me like it would be more sort of nutritionally beneficial to, to, you know, even into adulthood, drink milk that comes from a human, because we are humans, rather than milk that comes from a cow, because we're not cows, you know. Beneficial for whom? <laughs> the person consuming well, the milk. Right. I, well, so you know. as a human Let's hear from the ladies in the room on this one. <laughs> well, I, okay. I like no, this idea. As a human adult, is there a benefit to drinking human milk? So that's actually a, a question that I get asked a lot. So you're studying human milk out of the Department of Food Science. Are you going to try to make a human milk substitute for adults? The answer to that is no. But what, <laughs> <laughs> what, we want to, what we want to understand is fundamental tenets of human nutrition during that critical window, and can we apply that to other systems, other stages of development? Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, there are actually black markets out there for human milk. A lot of bodybuilders <sighs> like to have human milk oh, really? uh, because they, there's a belief in that. But that takes milk away from those stakeholders, if I can use that sterile term, that, that really need it, which are the babies, babies, right? Okay. <laughs> right? I've never yes. heard babies called stakeholders. <laughs> 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 it's professoring. Um, that is, that's controversial, bodybuilders stealing milk from oh, yeah. babies. Well, there's a, there's a lot. <laughs> so we have the scientific aspects of what we do, but there's also the societal impacts too. Um, and so it is not insignificant to be doing this research. So, because what is the overall goal? Are we trying to, um, will we try to make that into a commodity? Hmm. You know, what role does the scientist play in that? Um, how is a formula being delivered um, if for profit, for instance? Um, so there's a lot of different debates, which is one of the reasons why I'm attracted to this field too, because we're talking about this thing that is um, basal to our existence breast milk, human milk, 
um, part of us being a male, right? And so mm -hmm. there's a lot of strong feelings about it, um, and there's a lot of strong debate about what is the best course of action to enhance our uh, species. Hmm. And and so that's still up in the air. You would say you don't want to come down, like up in the air. What do you mean? Like, is there like is do you would you say that there's support for the idea that like a like an adult human drinking breast milk is beneficial to them or? You know, I I don't think that the the um, actually I know. So the, the the studies haven't been done, um, okay. I, and I think that. Uh, you know, Kristen kind of gave a look over there. It's like, I'm not sure, so sure that women would appreciate that. <laughs> Why and, do we even, yeah. And, I mean, if we think about how we um, interact with our domesticated animals, I mean, that, that's, I think that's um, it's one of those concerns that we should keep in the back of our mind because as uh, a species, we're, intelligent, we're, we're fantastically intelligent, we're very creative, but we're also of extremes. And so, no, I don't think we're going to, well, I don't know. I don't know if I want to wander into this area. <laughs> I just want to I say for the record, I, I just want to say for the record, I was not suggesting that we begin to <laughs> make an in, sort of industrialized harvest of human breast milk. I was thinking of more of a artisanal, sort of a, more of a sustainable market. Craft, craft market. Craft milk. Well, there is a conflict of interest, though, right? So if mom says that she has extra breast milk and there's a financial incentive for her to donate that, um, how do we have protections in place for mom to be able to have enough for her infant also? Mm -hmm. So like beyond making the artisanal breast milk substitute or uh, whatever delicious treat you're talking about, I'm not quite sure. Um, there is an actual societal question that we're asking here. Um, how do we make sure that babies have breast milk that they can because we study breast milk bioactives and we can say like, oh yeah, that's helpful. That might be helpful for cancer. And then do we take away um, some of the breast milk supply. Or then do you just try to take whatever ele element from that was helpful and synthesize it in a different way? I would want to do that. Okay. Absolutely. Um, but it's, um, it's, it's, uh, so science is um, always evolving and uh, we tend to have like our like brief window into time and say like, oh my God, it's gonna take so long to do this sort of thing. Um, but yes, we can do that. We can learn from it and then we can synthesize or extracted, we take a look at plant products and say like, how closely are these plant products to breast milk components? Hmm. And so that's another approach, or can we modify this plant products? Yeah. So. Sorry if we wandered down and. <laughs> no, no, it's just, it's, it's um, I love talking about this uh, particular topic in terms of the societal impacts, yeah. um, but there are a lot of strong feelings about it and for good reason. I mean, yeah. it is, we're dealing with, um, there's been a misappropriation of all kinds of biological um, um, items from individuals who didn't think that they were going to be donating towards this direction. So mm. um, there's there's a lot that's gone on. Um, anyway, I'll leave it at that. Um, cool. Well, I think uh, we should start to wrap up, but uh, I just want to give you the opportunity if there's anything that hasn't come up about your research that you'd like to talk about. Let's see. Something about our research. You know what? So, we talked a bit about our breast milk work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we are interested in general dietary interactions too, and we're really interested in how um, antimicrobials that we find in our beverages or in our foods, which are designed to keep microbes in check inside, you know, the supermarket, uh -huh. how that influences what's happening within our gastrointestinal tract yeah. as well, right? So if you have, um, you know, some Diet Coke and you have some sort of preservative in there, 
does it do anything to what's living inside of us? And so we, we have a couple studies um, on that, or at least one that we published uh, relatively recently trying to take a look at that. And as it turns out, this antimicrobial, uh, it's called pyelacine, um, the microbes can adapt to it. Mm. So with antibiotics, like really powerful antibiotics, as long as you're feeding the person antibiotics, you're gonna have a different set of microbes inside of you. But this antimicrobial, a food-grade antimicrobial preservative, um, the microbes adapt to it. Mm. And they actually say, okay, I see you. And then they, they change, and then they change back even while you're still feeding it. I mean, I think a lot of what we're doing um, in food and nutrition is gonna be re-examining what we're putting inside our body from this new perspective, okay, well, we know our bodies are completely linked with the microbes that we have. So that's really cool. That actually means that it's maybe not as big of a concern about like the preservatives or antimicrobial agents aren't as harmful as you might have been concerned about. It could, um, and you know, it goes back to this whole idea of the microbes, the gut microbiome being good versus bad. Right. And so our um, our bodies, our physiology are incredibly well-tuned. Our homeostasis is very resilient. It takes a lot to shift things. And sometimes, um, depending on who it is, it might be just a little bit. But um, mm. we could absorb a lot of these challenges, which does not mean, I'm saying, eat as many preservers as you can, but right. it may be a relatively neutral. Um, Interesting. Okay, I think we're ready to move on to the last part of the show, which is uh, a little game that I invented called GTA. Guess that acronym. <laughs> um, and so for this game, I have uh, my co-host, uh, Nick, guess what some acronyms provided by our guests are. And so the idea of this game is that in science, we use a lot of acronyms. Uh, and even from one subfield to another, they might be very foreign and alienating. And so just kind of trying to break those down. Um, All right, lay on me. So, Nick. Yes. Your first acronym is O-T-U. O-T-U. Uh, I'm going to say um, outstanding technical understanding. Nice. <laughs> outstanding technical. I like that one. Is that what it means? Yeah. Oh, excellent. I really awesome. like that definition. Yes, all right. I'm getting my honorary degree this afternoon. Outstanding technical understanding. I like that better. <laughs> Good, we'll keep it at that then. OTU is an operational taxonomic unit. Which okay. Like, sounds super boring. But that's what ba people call um, bacterial species because we don't know what a species is. So operational means, uh, you know, I'm just going to tell you how I define it. A taxonomic unit. Just you get you make up a definition as you're talking to somebody about what an OTU means. There's some agreed upon definitions if you don't define it. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's basically a species, but for bacteria because they're weird and asexual. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Okay. The next acronym is MSDS. Hmm. Uh, Multispectral uh, dilated system. Sounds very legit. I think, my, I think the multispectral really part is correct. The other, the other, two, uh, the other two letters. You're good at making so things much. up <laughs> that sound legitimate. <laughs> is that what it means? Uh, no. Oh, okay. And right. actually, this isn't a microbial term, but um, a, a little bit of an aside. We went to the toy store this weekend, I was telling you for. And um, my daughter's big into these um, like gem growing kits. Oh yeah. And they give you this cool. like powder, and you add some dye, and you make crystals. And anyway, she loves this stuff. And uh, they're not that safe. 
right? Oh. And I remarked, Even like, it, I wish this came with an MSDS, and I thought, oh, no one knows what that is. Wait, what they don't come the I, I actually knew this one because I used to work in, a, they like, a soil lab. Because I, wa I, I wanted an MSDS for this <laughs> kid. <laughs> and then I realized, like, most people would know. It's a material safety data sheet. Oh. And it tells you all the different ways uh, a chemical can hurt you. Okay. And how to protect yourself. <laughs> oh, yeah, that might be yeah. good with a little Very chemical useful. toy for children yes. to have. Yeah. <laughs> so if you work in a lab that uses chemicals, you have to have, like, a, an MSDS for you each do. chemical so yeah. you know. Yeah, and everybody's supposed to read the MSDS and know how to protect themselves. Yeah, stay safe. Okay, um, and the last acronym is SOP. Oh, well, I think you just misspelled SOAP there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, SOP. Um, it's going to be a safely organized protozoa. Ooh. <laughs> I wanted to throw in a little bit of more of a biology term into this one. Uh, Do you want to tell us what that is, Nick? Uh, safely organized? Well, you have your protozoa that, of course, really dangerously organized <laughs> is sort of chaotic and random. So having, them, having an SOP is um, better. Nice. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's a s standard operating procedure. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we need permission from government agencies to work with some of our organisms. Oh. Um, and it's just uh, you have to agree with these regulating agencies on how to do it. That's, oh. that's what they want. SOPs. Yeah. It's a so protocol. What is, what is, why do you need that permission? Um, just to be safe okay. with your organism. So you're not like going to start the next like mega plague yeah, kind of thing? Well, we don't, uh, well, what I tell the folks in my lab, if we ever, we have over 600 isolates right now. We have a lot of different bacteria in our lab. And I say, if we isolate anything that looks like a pathogen, we just autoclave it. Just get rid of it. I don't want it at all. I say the same. Yeah. Autoclave? What's that? Uh, it's a big pressure cooker. Oh, okay. Basically. Oh. So yeah. just pressure cook those. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And yeah. Anything you don't just get dangerous. rid of it. You like really we kill it. Yeah. Annihilate. Oh yeah. Annihilation chamber. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so we're more worried about plant pathogens. That's probably the more it, like bigger issue. Mm -hmm. Glad I'm not a pathogen on this campus. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay. Well, I think that's the end of our show. Thank you so much for joining me, Kristen and David and Nick. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. My guests today were Dr. David Sella from the Food Science Department and Dr. Kristen DeAngelis from the Microbiology Department. My co-host today was comedian Nick Karen, who you can catch every single Wednesday night hosting the Bishop's Lounge Comedy Open Mic in Northampton, Massachusetts. You can also catch uh, the Bishop's Lounge Comedy Open Mic on Sunday nights hosted by yours truly, Laura Federuso. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. You can check out Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is supported by the Emmerich Labs and the Polymer Science Department. Thank you so much for listening today. Uh, stick around for WMUA news coming right up.